Welcome to Good Christophian Talks. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. And I'm Brian. Thank you for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help us get the Bible in our daily newsfeed. We post a new episode at the start of each week with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to listen to. And now, let's talk more about this week's talk. This week's talk is an exhortation by Brother Tim Badger that he gave in December of last year. Uh, The title is Pray for Sight. Uh, This was a really great exhortation. Um, Tim does a study on 2 Kings 6 and essentially kind of some of the background and then application for us on the phrase that there's more of them, or there's more with us uh, than there are of them. Uh, I remember uh, Elisha praying for uh, his, his servant uh, to have the angel armies revealed to him. Um, Tim does a great job uh, presenting this exhortation, and this was a this was one that, uh, that that was sent in to us, so thank you for the suggestion. Please do send us those. We very much appreciate them. Uh, so here is Tim Badger, Pray for Sight. Well, thanks, Brother Phil, and good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, this morning we have a short section of Old Testament history um, that we're going to use from 2 Kings chapter 6 as the basis of encouragement and exhortation and self-examination this morning. Um, I'm going to try and stick to this passage as much as we can. Um, However, we are going to see how it links to the teaching of Jesus uh, towards the end. I feel, at least on one occasion in his teaching, he must have been thinking about these events way back in 2 Kings chapter 6. Well, I want to share this with you this morning, brothers and sisters, is because it's been a passage that's been really helpful to me um, over the past little while. Um, I'd never really thought about it other than possibly in Sunday school or the occasional reference to verse 17 when we have that amazing Uh, imagery and scene set with Elisha and his servant and what his servant knows and we're gonna we're gonna come and look at that but it was only about a I don't know eight or nine or ten months ago um, when I was catching up with a friend for breakfast and uh, it was a time when I needed help and they pointed me to this passage and I have not let go of this passage since so my uh, intention this morning is to share with you um, some of the inspiration that I have gained from this passage, and I really hope that you can strongly catch its living fire. Second Kings chapter 6 is an extraordinary chapter by any account. Some of the most perplexing and unusual displays of God's power are right here in the thick of Israel's growing history of departure from God. There's a lack of recognition in kings in Israel at this time of the presence of, there's a re- lack of recognition of God in the nation and of his presence in their lives. And they continue, as, for, as 2 Kings chapter 1 opens up, they are continually seeking for other sources of help. That's really clear in 2 Kings 1 verse 3. So the ministry of Elisha is incredible from start to finish by, any, by anyone's description. And brothers and sisters, since we're thinking about the prophets of Israel this morning, we just do well before we jump into the story 
to remember why Elisha is here. Why did God send prophets like him to his people at these different stages of Israel's declining history? We're told explicitly at the end of 2 Chronicles that God did it purely because he had compassion on his people. That's why Elisha's here in 2 Kings chapter 6. That's why he's here for his ministry. Because God loves his people, he will not let them go, and he's desperate for them to see his presence in their lives. That is why Elisha's here. You know, it's interesting, too, when you look at Elisha, and these chapters are are full of extraordinary things. Um, The lessons are not just for Israel. There's this um, constant interaction with other nations around them, in particular Syria. So we know the Sunday school story of of, of 2 Kings chapter 5 with Naaman. Well, what's he doing in here? Why is he learning an, a, a lesson that Israel needed to learn? But there's this interaction between others around Israel. They're watching. They know what their prophets are like. They know their names um, of the prophets. And there's lessons that God is teaching, not just Israel, but extending that further into parts of Syria. And as we'll see this morning, into their army. It's amazing. Well, the thing that we've chosen as a summary for this little section is to pray for sight. And you know, brothers and sisters, you might see how that comes up in this little section. There's three times that Elisha prays um, for God to affect the sight of people in this chapter. One, he he does it for Elisha, Elisha's servant. So Elisha prays for his servant for God to open his eyes. And then the next thing you find is that Elisha's praying that God will blind the Syrian army. And then the next thing he does in the next verse is pray for God to open the eyes of the Syrian army. It's weird, but it's amazing. You know, we need sight, brothers and sisters, and we often lose it. And this morning, what I want you to think about and to be strengthened around, um, as we all need, is not sight in the sense of understanding what God's doing or insight into what God's kind of sovereign providence, providence is up to in our lives. I want to wind that back this morning because I think that's what's happening in this chapter. What I want us to get out of this idea of sight and praying for sight is just seeing that he is present in your life. Not trying to figure out what's going on, not to try and understand what God is doing in his sovereign province, but just to pray that your faith will be strengthened to see him encamped around you and in the lives of other people. So other brothers and sisters and young people can have that sight and that richness of faith just to believe that God is here, not to understand what he's doing because we don't always, but to be strengthened in our faith that he is definitely here. Do you know, um, this idea of, of things encamped around you is, is, is in Psalm 34. We, we know the passage. The passage says, the angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him. Now, Psalm 34 is a messianic psalm. There's no doubt about it, brothers and sisters, but that does not mean it only applies to the Messiah. He encamps around everyone who fears him. So it's not just Elisha. It's not going to be just Elisha's servant on some special occasion. Every one of us can have open eyes to see the reality of the sovereignty of God's providence in our lives. Not that we know what will unfold, but we know he's there. That's the story of 2 Kings chapter 8. And Israel needed to learn that, and so do you and I. So let's dive into 2 Kings chapter 8. Uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 6. There's uh, four main characters. One of the characters that we come across is the king of Syria and his army. 
We're not told his name in this record. In fact, nobody has a name in this record except for Elisha. Everyone's anonymous, even the king of Israel. Uh, we have to sort of nut out his name. We're not going to do that because it's not important. The second character is Elisha. He's referred to as the man of God, the prophet. He's referred to as my master by his servant, and he's called my father by the king of Israel in verse 21. The third character is the king of Israel. He has a lot to learn. But don't forget, he's learning because God has compassion on his people. And the fourth is Elisha's servant, also nameless. So there's our four characters. Let's jump in and see what God teaches through these four characters. Um, what we're really going to do is just go through the story because it's, it's, um, it's incredible from the very first opening line of this circumstance. Verse 8. Let's read it. So here, here we are. The king of Syria was making war against Israel. This kept on, it was all the time. They were sending little raids in. Sometimes they'd get a few more raids. There was all this kind of back and forth between various nations. So verse 8, the king of Syria was making war against Israel. Um, and he consulted his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. Now, the picture that you've got is uh, the king of Syria and he's got his private um, military council. So he's sitting around, maybe he has a big round table, I don't know, and I don't know how many there were, maybe there's 12 or 24, but he's got his, his private military council. These are the elite. These are the guys with the maps and the pens and the plans to carry out the plans of the Syrian army, which was enormous, and they had high-tech equipment. They had horses and chariots. It was formidable. So he, he meets with his private group of, of consultants and war advisors, and he says, my camp will be in such and such a place. Now, clearly, he didn't say that. But that's what the record says to us because it's keeping us in the dark about where that place was. He obviously told, when he met with them, he told them where it was. But we read it as such and such a place. We have no idea. We're kept in the dark. We can't see what's going on in such and such a place. So we have no idea where it is. The readers of this story and the way it's crafted are kept in the dark. And uh, apparently Israel's not meant to know where that is either. So really no one knows what's going on in this story except we find out in verse 9, Elisha does. Look at verse 9. And the man of God, this is Elisha, sent to the king of Israel. Now this is immediate, um, brothers and sisters. I want you to, the way this record is written is fantastic. One moment in the, in the story, we're in the council room, the private council room of the king, and he's telling his advisors where the camp is. The very next verse is Elisha sending a message of where the such and such a place was. <laughs> and it's still not named. Verse, verse 9, the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place, whatever that was, that's the, the such and such a place. For the Syrians are coming down there to such and such a place. So instantly in this story, Elisha knows where such and such a place is. And he tells the king of Israel. So verse 10, the king of Israel sent someone <laughs> to the place of which the man of God had told him. And thus he warned him, so Elisha warned the king, and he was watchful there not just once or twice. The NET says this happened on several occasions. So over and over again, you have the Syrian king meeting with his army, 
and in their private room, closed doors, everything, and he's like, we're going to meet in such and such a place, maybe change the location. And so he, he immediately sends out someone to go there, and, and lo and behold, there's already the Israelites there, or they've moved in a different direction, so they couldn't, couldn't be intercepted. And it happened over and over and over again. It's crazy. And the king of Syria is getting more and more and more frustrated. Nobody knows what's going on except Elisha and the king, whatever the king is told. It's a, an extraordinary setup to the story. So you have rage in verse 11. Um, the, the way it's written in the King James, New King James, might, might just soften it. But I, I think the Hebrew, uh, when you sort of try and suss out what's going on in the Hebrew, this is what goes on. Verse 11, therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled. Maybe that's a mix of frustration and angst and just, he's just cheesed. Like, this is really irritating. It's foiling my plans every single time, right? Troubled by this thing. And he called his servants, this private council, and said to them, and the new King James says, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Now, in the Hebrew, um, people say that this has got a note of sarcasm to it, and he's, he's angry, right? So you can imagine what happened on, the, on the, the meeting room as he slams his fist on the table, bang, and he says, who isn't on Israel's side? He's so annoyed, and he, and he feels there must be a mole in his private council, right? And he just says, well, who of you aren't on the Israel's side? He's so irritated. He cannot see what is going on, brothers and sisters, but his council can. What? Verse 12 is extraordinary. There's like deathly silence in the room. And then one of the servants just pipes up and says, um, No one, my lord. But Elisha the prophet who's in Israel can tell the king of Israel everything you say, even when you're muttering to yourself in your bedroom. <laughs> like what? So we've got this extraordinary situation where the king of Syria has just been told that every word he speaks, whether he's in his bedroom or his bedchamber or he's cruising down between the, the royal residences, whatever, anything he says to anybody goes straight to Elisha and that goes straight to the king. Um, we, <laughs> this made me think of uh, a situation recently when we were traveling over to Queensland driving and we drove through parks, um, New South Wales. Some of you might know where that is. And there's a massive satellite there that's another science thing which I'm interested in. But they have this little center that shows how satellite dishes work and all that. So it's kind of like the whispering wall near Hebron, but you can whisper into the satellite dish and like way over there is another little satellite dish and it projects your voice. Like you whisper into it and the person like people way over there, like where James uh, Taylor's sitting, they can hear you as loud as, as loud. it just made me think of that. Like any little whisper, bang, it's coming right into the ears of Elisha. Like it's a, it's, there's nothing preventing it. He can hear everything that's going on because God allows him to do so. So you'd think if you were the king of Syria and you realize that this is probably what's going on and time and time again, um, things have been sort of foiled because Elisha knows, you would think that, well, What's the use? But he doesn't. He says, right, I'm going to get him. Let's get him. Look at verse, where are we? Verse 12. No, no, we just read that. Verse 13, look. He said, go instantly, once he learns this, he says, go and see where he is, that I might send and get him. Because he has no idea. He can't see where he is, doesn't know. And he also can't see anything that's going on in terms of his private counsel. 
So he says, go get him. Then I may, uh, and it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. So you'd think if you were the king of Syria and also the council, you'd be like, well, Elisha just heard that too. Right? <laughs> like he just said, I'm getting Elisha. But Elisha obviously just got that message. Um, obviously not a text message, but it came straight to him. So then he goes ahead with this crazy plan in verse 14, and it's extraordinarily over the top. Um, I'm just wondering, I'm getting a little bit warm. Is anyone really warm? Can you, I wonder if we can turn some AC on. Is that all right? Oh, they are on. <laughs> oh, wait. Okay, anyway. Maybe it's just up here. That's all right. Okay, so let's just think about verse 14. Therefore, he, the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, why did they do that? Well, they came by night so no one could see them, right? They didn't want anyone to notice this great army. And it's a great army. Now, what are they doing? What's the purpose of the Syrian king? He's here to capture one man and his sidekick. Because he probably knew that he had a, a servant with him. So the king of Syria gets a great army. He sends out his chariots and his horses to capture Elisha. There's two, two people. And there's the, the Israelite army is nowhere around here. They're probably down to the southwest in Samaria, if there's any around, which is about 15 or 17 kilometers away. So the, the Israelite army is in, in Dothan, nor is the king in Dothan. It's literally just Elisha and his servant. And the king of Syria sends his massive retinue of, of horses and chariots to surround him at nighttime, thinking he could catch him. And then enters the character Elisha's servant. Look what happens, verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, now what do you think he was doing early when he got up? Well, if he's Elisha's servant, I'm almost certain he would have been getting up at the crack of dawn to pray or something. Like he's a man of God and, and he's with the man of God to support Elisha. So no doubt they've slept that night and, and he gets up, the servant gets up in the, in the, just as the sun's coming up in verse 15. And I'm just imagining this a little bit embellishing the record, but this is probably what happened. He'd go out and find a nice place to pray, and he's praying, and he just opens his eyes, looks up, and he's like, what? What on earth is going on? There's, as the sun comes up and all the shadows lift, you can see an intense army of horses and chariots all around. They're kind of in like a little bit of a hilly area. So however the Syrian army did it, they've stationed all around to look really intimidating. And Elisha's servant is maybe just been praying. He looks up and he sees all of this crazy army all around him. And you can imagine in the instant, there's only him and Elisha nearby. And Elisha might have been just over there. And the first thing he does is panics. Absolutely panics. <clears throat> the Hebrew doesn't get captured in the English, the, um, the panicky nature of it, a little bit. Alas, my master, what shall we do? This is like a, what? Like, what is going on? What are these people doing here? And he knows, uh, like you can tell, he knows that they're coming against him. Like, why else? There's no one else around. And he panics. He would have been a God-fearing person. I think that's safe to conclude, brothers and sisters. He himself has only recently as Elisha's servant, witnessed some pretty extraordinary things. Like earlier in the chapter, he just witnessed a floating axe head. It's not every day you see that floating in the Murray River. So he goes out in the morning, totally unaware, couldn't see anything because it had been night, and he's scared skinny to see the full force of the Syrian army. 
He has nothing. All he sees, brothers and sisters, like we of course would, is the problem. And you can sense the fear in the tone of his exclamation to Elisha. And here's where the story takes an extraordinary turn. Verse 16. As he's sweating and asking Elisha what to be done, Elisha just simply responds like this, with a note of encouragement to his brother. So he answered, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha's really calm, brothers and sisters. Why? Why is Elisha so calm? Why isn't he panicking? Why isn't he running around and sending a messenger to the king of Israel to send a retinue of chariots and horses up this way to help them out? He doesn't do any of anything like that. Nothing. He takes nothing into his own hands here in that sense. And plus, how can he even say there's more with us to this young servant than there is with them? There's only two of them against a great army. The math doesn't stack up at all. But behind this, brothers and sisters, is a prophet of God who's already seen visions of God's providence, who knows firsthand in his own life experience that God is there and will not go away. He could see something, Elisha could see something that his servant could not. You know, that happens sometimes, I reckon. Sometimes we might not be able to see certain things in our life or circumstances or the brotherhood or family, but other people might be able to, and they can help us out. That doesn't mean that they understand what's going on or that we can pinpoint exactly what God's doing, but there's people at certain times, and sometimes it's you and sometimes it's the person next to you, that can see more clearly because of circumstances in their life or what they've learned, and we need to impart that vision and encouragement to each other. See, from our perspective, brothers and sisters, like this, this servant who was caught out, who was a faithful man, God-fearing man, he was caught out with fear in the moment. And he needed someone, a brother like Elisha, to stand next to him and say, no, don't worry. There is heaps more right here with us, encamped all around us, than anything that you need to worry about from the other side of the army. There's heaps here. God is with us. It's something his servant couldn't think of or believe at that moment. He went through a period of, of challenge and anxiety and, and fear. And who wouldn't? Our instinct would be to do that. But he needed Elisha to calm him down. Not only does Elisha encourage him with the facts, he also prays for him and I believe with him, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 17. Of all the things that Elisha could have done at this moment, after saying, don't worry, God, is God there's more with us than the Syrian army, of all the things he could have done, like send a message to Israel, king of Israel, nope, Elisha prayed and said, Yahweh, I pray, open his eyes so he can see, in a sense, like, so he can see what I know and see. And right then, Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, the two of them. 
together in that place. Now, the Hebrew is extraordinary here, brothers and sisters, because it draws you into the record. Um, it doesn't say, and you know, open the eyes of the young man, and he saw the chariots. The record is written like this to get us to get into that situation. The Hebrew says, and he saw, and look, the mountain is full of chariots and horses. It's getting us, the way this is written is for us to see it too, not just Elisha's servant. And he saw, and look, behold, there they were. We need to see that in faith too, brothers and sisters. As Elisha's servant could see, as God gave him that ability to see the reality of the situation. And what's amazing here, brothers and sisters, is God gives him a vision of something that's relevant to his time. He's surrounded by chariots and horses. So what does he see? Chariots and horses. But these ones are on fire. Because this is the providence of God. That's what God encourages him with. Don't you ever think you're alone, Elisha's servant. Nope. There's more here than you could ever need to help you through your circumstances. A prayer for his servant. You know, Elisha has seen this type of thing before, back in chapter 2. He was well aware of the providence of God. And as one writer put, this servant now also had a clear glimpse of the sovereignty of providence. In this context, God shows this young man something that was relevant to the time and place and context of the world and the circumstance that he was in right then. But do you know what's really amazing about this record, brothers and sisters, that staggers me every time I read it? Is this. Not one place in this story, no further verse in this record, uses the chariots and horses of fire. They appear, and they're gone. Not gone in the sense of, like, they've all ridden away, and God's left these two people. You, you would expect, and maybe I would too, well, I do expect, and maybe you would too, <laughs> that's what I meant to say, is this, that the next verse of the story is, verse 18, so just pretend verse 18 isn't quite there yet, you would expect in this story that once God shows all of these chariots and horses of fire, that the next scene is that the Syrian army is just obliterated by burning chariots and flaming. Like, it would have just been the most epic battle ever of, like, of unreal and surreal proportions. That's what you would think would happen. God shows them the army and says, right, this is what I'm going to use. That is not how this story ends, even remotely. There is no epic battle between the Syrian horses and chariots and the horses and chariots on fire by Yahweh. He never saves Elisha and his servant by using that army. Not even close. They're not even used in the rest of the record. But he wants Elisha's servant to know that they are there. But he's not telling Elisha's servant how he's going to work it out and save them. He will deliver him, but it will not be something necessarily that Elisha's servant even understands. In fact, the, the crazy thing about this story, brothers and sisters, that pinches us to, to reality of how God works and we don't always understand, but we need to trust, is that that very day, Little did Elisha's servant know, but he would be setting the table for that army and giving them a feast. And instead of a bloodbath, there would be a banquet. That's how God was going to work out this story. And the servant had no idea, little did he know, that that's how this story would end, that he would be feeding this army. They would not be watching them destroyed with chariots and horses of fire, burned up to a crisp, or however might that have happened. Amazing. God did not do that. There was more going on here, brothers and sisters, 
than just this servant's circumstances. There's a nation, there's lessons, there's a king of Israel that's yet to learn something powerful that he still can't see. So Elisha's servant's perspective is common to us. He saw what was around him. The enemy, the largeness of it, the might, the terrible circumstances, the challenges that he was facing as as an individual. He was a spiritual man but he was experiencing a period of fear in his life that just came upon him suddenly in that morning when he woke up. And the prayer that his brother offered was that God would open his eyes so he could see. Elisha's prayer wasn't for the means of how God would deliver them from that situation. It was so that those who were in the situation could just richly trust that God was there, whatever he would do. Does this really apply to us? I mean, this is an obscure story in the record of kings, God working through prophets and doing miracles. Does it? Yes, it does. Psalm 34, verse 7. We've quoted it, but now we're going to read it. Come back to Psalm 34. Verse 7. This psalm was written before this incident took place well before. This is from the time of David. And in fact, brothers and sisters, it could very well be that the Elisha, uh, the servant of Elisha knew this song. But when you're stuck in that situation and you need to try and believe it and rely on it, well, it's a challenge, isn't it? When God puts us through circumstances that test our faith. Look at Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man cried out, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. It doesn't say how. It's not even necessarily in the way expected. But here is the encouragement in verse 7. The angel of Yahweh encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Somehow, some way. But nevertheless, the point is that the angel of the Lord is all around. All around. It's not unusual, brothers and sisters, and it's not wrong for godly brothers and sisters to experience fear. It can happen. It can happen when various circumstances in life come along, or family matters, or ecclesial matters. That's not a sign of ungodliness, brothers and sisters, but it's a sign that God is working in us to open our eyes to help us trust in him through that fear. Psalm 34 makes that clear too. It says, he delivered me out of all my fears. Godly people do go through fearful times. And the message of the psalm is to say that when you are in those times, you can trust that God is encamped everywhere around you. That's not just a nice feeling. It is actually the reality that we either do or do not see, brothers and sisters. That's the message. You may not be in danger, and same here, of our life when we wake up some morning like Elisha's servant. God doesn't put all of us in that situation, but he certainly works in all of our lives, and all of us at times face challenging circumstances. You know, at the simplest level, this incident in 2 Kings chapter 6, with Elisha and his servant, is a situation in the brotherhood where one person is conveying their dismay, fear, or anxiety about the circumstances in their life, and another person encourages them and prays for them. This is common to our experience. Whichever position 
we may find ourselves in. Or is it, brothers and sisters? Sharing problems and concerns and anxieties is common, common enough. A lot of those conversations happen. But how often is praying for each other? When does that happen? It does it. You know, we rarely wake up in the morning to circumstances as dramatic as this. But it can happen. However, more common to our experience is possibly less dramatic issues, perhaps less life-threatening or altering. However, we need sight all the same. To see that God's ministers to those who will inherit salvation, which is easy to just kind of say off the tongue, but that's what the angels are, are not merely commissioned for drastic times, but to our daily choices and challenges, our daily fears and failures. We have many challenges that face our members in the body, brothers and sisters. Not everyone's going through challenging circumstances, but it seems common enough. Circumstances that need absolute clarity of vision in one particular area. God's sovereign providence. His tight encampment around us. He wants us to see that. He really does. We have members here with us and online that feel the acute and sharpening challenges of a whole range of issues. Maybe it's old age wreaking havoc. Maybe it's our teenagers, well, some of our teenagers in early 20s. Maybe there's different issues for them and, and old age is not something that they can relate to and the challenges and the personal circumstances that that impinges upon, but they have their own issues possibly. Maybe social ones or of a sexual nature that can war in their members at times. Sin vies to reign in their mortal bodies, in all of ours, possibly feeling surrounded at times on every side by our own weaknesses. And brothers and sisters, it sure can feel like a great army at times. And still others in our body may feel the sharp pain of being unmarried when they wish God would provide. This is not uncommon, and I've felt that before too. It brings other unspoken and misunderstood personal challenges at times, and again, possible feelings of anxiety and other feelings. For others, it's physical sickness and uncertain medical outcomes that weighs anxiously in those quiet, lonely moments on the mind, thinking about the future and family. For others, there are deeply personal matters that feel Goliath-like in how they impose themselves in different areas of life, including relationships and marriage bonds and just simply an ability to mix and feel part of this body. Others may feel the pain of loss of employment. These perhaps are just some of the ones that we know or hear about in our experience, but there are many more. There's lots of varied ways in which a believer faces deep troubles in life. Many of these issues and trials don't even go away overnight. Some of them last for a long time maybe months, sometimes years, sometimes it feels like they're not going to end. But this record is challenging you and I to ask ourselves what we really see. When we look around, brothers and sisters, maybe if you're older, you might look around, and what you see is that your life is aging. Your troubles with health might be increased. That's what you see around you. Maybe you see other issues in your life. Maybe it's personal. What you see is your mistakes, the challenges of getting along with others or feeling part of this body, feeling accepted. Maybe all of those are, are various challenges 
Maybe we feel challenged by the monumental shifts in our society that are going on around us, where the world's headed. What 2 Kings chapter 6 is doing is telling us to see it how God sees it. Not necessarily, brothers and sisters, and I'm at pains to feel this, not necessarily seeing how God will actually bring you through it, but to believe he will and that he's actually encamped around you. As much as we don't understand, as much as it might feel unfair or fearful or, or trying, but to believe that he is there, just seeing God. We need to pray for God to open our eyes to see things like this. That's the reality of the situation. That's the permanent reality, brothers and sisters. Our current circumstances will change, and in the end, they will no longer be. In the end. Give us eyes to see God to see you encamped around us. Our human nature and human thinking, things like pride, tends to keep us in the dark. But if we open our eyes, we'll see that God is right there. You know, brothers and sisters, I I feel like maybe this is a good challenge for us. Maybe a bit of homework, if you will. I challenge you this week to pray for someone Be the Elisha for someone. That's my challenge for you. To pray for someone, not um, for understanding how God will solve the problems and the circumstances, but for open eyes. Sit down and pray with someone that you've never prayed with before and pray that God will open your eyes or their eyes or whatever that need might be. Now, we can think of a million excuses why not to do this because it's not your personality. It's not something you're comfortable with. But it's deeply spiritual, brothers and sisters. And it's deeply part of this story of Elisha and his servant and the brotherly bond and belief in God that they shared together. Maybe you can only do that over the phone. Just call someone up and pray over the phone. That's possible. I was with a brother earlier this week, um, also just walking around before school. And we talked about a lot of things in the brotherhood. But the most powerful thing was to sit down on a park bench and pray pray our hearts out that God would open our eyes to trust in him, not take things in our own hands. I challenge you to pray with someone and for someone this week so God can open our eyes and help us to trust in him. Do you know there's another part to this story, brothers and sisters, and it starts in verse 18. And we're just going to highlight what's in this section because I'd love you to mull it over this week. You know, the the, the strange thing is this story story of this event doesn't end like we would possibly expect it with the obliteration of the Syrians. The, the strange things that unfold now are this, in part two. So part one was this, the message in part one of the story, up to verse 17, is for God to see the importance of seeing him in our life. Part two is the impact that seeing him in our life can have as you deal with other people. You know, in summary, this is what happens. Elisha prays that God will strike the Syrian army not with a plague or obliterate them, but with blindness. So the Syrians become blind, and they're in Dothan walking around, and don't forget, they're looking for Elisha, right? And Elisha walks up to them, and they can't see, and the blindness here seems to be from some bright light, the, the Hebrew. Anyway, they can't see. So the army's all around, and they can't see, and Elisha comes up to them, and he says, oh, let me take you to the city where that man is. Now, he's right there. He's right with them. And, and they begin this 15-kilometer trek 
down to the southwest of Samaria, where the royal residences were for the kings of Israel. And imagine that it's a ridiculous story. It's a ridiculous picture in your mind. There's Elisha and his servant walking along, and behind them are the horses and chariots. And he takes the whole group of them, because they can't even find their way, and they arrive in the royal residences of Israel's king. And then he says, Lord, open their eyes. And it's kind of like this, the ding And they open their eyes, and the crazy thing, Elisha's right there, that's who they were trying to find, and they're right inside the heart of the enemy territory. And do you know what the king of Israel says? Because he can't see what's going on, he says, let's kill him. Let's kill him. He's going for a bloodbath. They're the enemy, right? Let's obliterate them. And Elisha says, how dare you? Let's put on a meal. That's how Elisha treats the enemies. And I believe this sends a message to me, brothers and sisters, personally. If you can't see God at work and you don't believe he's at work in your life, visibly, indirectly, you're probably more likely to have the response like the king of Israel, right? I think that's true. If you can't see God, your first reaction is going to take him into your own hand. Let's kill him. This is an opportunity to kill him. And Elisha, who can see everything that's going on, says, no, let's put on a banquet. That's how we're going to treat the enemy. And I think there's something extraordinary here, brothers and sisters. The people who can see God in this story treat people kindly. Jesus picks up on this and says, you've got enemies? Feed them. Matthew chapter 5. Have them over. Now, it might not be possible in every case, but that's how you treat people that maybe you're offside with, whatever degree that enemy might be. Who knows? But if you, if you want to take the spirit of Jesus out of this Old Testament passage, it's how do you treat your enemies? And if you, if you actually believe that Christ is with you, it will change how you treat people. That, that's what's going on here. Total contrast between Elisha and the king of Israel. Total contrast. How did Jesus teach so strongly that you can pray for those who spitefully use you and your enemies? How did he do that, brothers and sisters? That's the most extraordinary teaching the planet has ever seen come out of the mouth of the Son of God. It goes against every fiber of our being in human nature. How can Jesus do that? Because he knew that God was with him every step of the way. And if you do believe that, it's got to change how you treat people. You'll be less likely to take into your, you'll be less likely to disparage them and do something nasty to them. And I believe that is a massively powerful exhortation to me. How does Romans chapter 12 say, if your enemy is hungry, put a meal on for them? That's, Romans chapter 12 is all over this story. Live peaceably. Don't take vengeance. That's mine. Live peaceably with all men. Do good. to the, This is all the same sort of thing that's happening right here once God lifts the veil off of Elisha's servant's eyes. Now he can treat his enemies differently because he's not depending on himself. He's leaving it to God. And he will just show the kindness of God and the compassion of God to those enemies and leave the rest to God. Who knows how God will deliver. That's the power of the teaching of the Son of God in how we treat our enemies. Maybe it's true, brothers and sisters. Maybe it's true for you. It's probably true for me. 
that the degree to which I believe God is involved and around me has a direct correlation to how I handle other people in the ecclesia and how I treat people, how I talk about them, and what I do. So the message from this week, or for this week going ahead from this passage, taking full inspiration from the spirit and example of Christ, who is drawing out the lessons of 2 Kings chapter 6, is for you to fully trust God, to help others do the same, to pray for your sight and for the sight of others, and to let that impact how you treat other people. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. We hope this talk helped you in your walk. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcast or whichever service you are using to help more people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this particular talk, please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it as well. For show notes on the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm gct or check the show notes section of your podcast player. Please share your thoughts on the talk from this week on our Facebook or Instagram pages, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, on Twitter, where we are at GCT underscore podcast, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where these talks are posted as well. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to our email at goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.